Is it possible the FBI has been aiding and abetting the very terrorist plots that the public expects them to disrupt? As America recoils in the wake of the Boston City bombings, we will hear from author and award-winning journalist Trevor Aronson about the FBI's role in infiltrating and assisting terrorists' attacks. Are preventative arrests, secret investigative hearings, and other provocative measures necessary in order to protect Canadians from terrorist plots? Constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati returns to weigh in on the Combating Terrorism Act. And what inconvenient facts do citizens need to know about in the context of Boston and the Canadian terrorist arrests? Julie Levesque of the Center for Research on Globalization provides us with an overdue fact check on mainstream media coverage of the renewed war on terrorism. On today's program, the FBI, Canada, and the politics of terror. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 2nd, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can now also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major stories shaping the national and international political landscape. A budget implementation bill tabled by Canadian Finance Minister Jim Flaherty on April 29th, contains provisions that allow the Prime Minister and his Cabinet to dictate the terms of collective bargaining and terms of salary and working conditions to employees of the national broadcaster, the CBC, as well as three other cultural and scientific crown corporations. Bill C-60 amends the Federal Financial Administration Act, thereby giving Cabinet the authority to order those corporations to go to the Treasury Board Committee for approval of their collective bargaining mandates. Under these amendments, the Treasury Board would have the additional authority to dispatch one of its own employees to monitor the collective bargaining. Liberal MP Scott Bryson raised concerns about how the bill removes the arm's-length independence of these corporations, saying in an interview, quote, these crown agencies represent public broadcasting, culture, and scientific research, three areas where the conservatives have been antagonistic, unquote. The CBC was established in the 1930s to be an independent voice for news and current affairs with a mandate that includes national unity. That comes to us from the Hill Times. As the hunger strike at Guantanamo Bay prison facility enters its 12th week, U.S. President Barack Obama is repeating his 2008 pledge to close the facility. The President told a White House press conference on Tuesday that the facility is a legal no-man's land, it is not necessary to keep America safe, and that, quote, it is expensive, it is inefficient, it hurts us in terms of our international standing, it lessens cooperation with our allies on counterterrorism efforts, it is a recruiting tool for extremists, it needs to be closed, unquote. 
100 prisoners have joined the strike, which is in protest of indefinite detention without charges or trials. Lawmakers in the House of Representatives have blocked efforts by Obama to close Guantanamo, arguing the president has offered no alternative for current or future captures of people they deem too dangerous to be held on the U.S. mainland. The American Civil Liberties Union argues, however, that the U.S. president still has the executive power to transfer about half of the inmates out of Guantanamo. That comes to us from Agence France Presse. According to White House officials, U.S. President Barack Obama is open to the idea of sending weapons to Syrian rebels, but such a decision is not imminent. Obama may also be softening his stand on the Syrian use of chemical weapons being a game-changer in terms of U.S. involvement in the conflict. The United States is prepared to send non-lethal equipment such as night vision goggles, communications equipment, and vehicles to the Syrian insurgents. At a White House news conference this week, Obama indicated he would need conclusive proof of the Assad government's use of poison gas before he would consider a wide range of retaliatory options. These options, he argued, would require international collaboration. Secretary of State John Kerry was to have been dispatched to Russia in the first week of May to convince that government to end its support for the Assad regime. Some U.S. congressional representatives are urging the White House to arm the rebels, create a no-fly zone to protect refugees, or to militarily seize Assad's chemical weapons stockpiles. That comes to us from the Los Angeles Times. A series of May Day rallies were held in cities across the U.S., organized by members of the clergy, organized labor activists, students, and civil liberties advocates. In Seattle, a peaceful rally turned violent shortly after dark as protesters flung objects at riot police who responded with flashbang grenades and pepper spray. Police said as of 9 p.m. local time, 11 people and two juveniles were arrested for assault and property damage. An estimated 3,500 demonstrators spanning two city blocks marched through downtown Los Angeles, waving flags and carrying signs with the slogan, Stop Deportations. The protests were staged in response to revised immigration laws, an 844-page bipartisan bill backed by President Obama would create a path to legal status and citizenship for 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S., but would strengthen the border with Mexico against illegal entry while making it easier for high-tech businesses, agriculture, and other industries to hire workers from abroad. That comes to us from Reuters. Revelations have come out about what the FBI knew about the Sarnyev brothers who were suspected of planting and detonating the makeshift bombs during the Boston Marathon recently. It is important to note, however, that there is substantial documentation demonstrating the FBI's role not only in investigating terrorist activity, but also in direct complicity in supporting the majority of terrorist plots in the USA. To help explain this very critical background, we're joined on the line by journalist Trevor Aronson. He is co-founder of the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting and a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism. He's the author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism, and his award-winning reporting on FBI infiltration of Muslim communities made Project Censored's top 25 most censored stories of last year. Trevor Aronson, could you tell us more about your research into the FBI's involvement in actually fostering terrorism? 
The, the genesis of the current FBI policy and, and program of using informants and, and terrorism sting operations um, is it came on 9-11 when the FBI was caught flat-footed and uh, most U.S. intelligence agencies, or all U.S. intelligence agencies, had failed to predict and prevent the, this horrific attack. And, and George W. Bush came to Robert Mueller, um, the, the newly appointed FBI director at the time, who was still the head of the FBI, and, and, and basically said, never again. We can never allow another terrorist attack. And what that has done has, has been, or what, what, what one of the things that has happened as a result of this has been an escalation of what the FBI terms human intelligence, that is, informants who are paid by the FBI to provide information about others. And, um, you know, so for some historical context, um, under COINTELPRO and J. Edgar Hoover, when, when most people associate the FBI with abuses and spying on U.S. citizens, um, the FBI had 1,500 informants. Um, during the drug wars of the 80s, that number increased to 6,000. And today we have a threefold increase over that to 15,000, um, most of whom were recruited after 9-11 and have been targeting Muslim communities in an effort to find people who are sympathetic to terrorists, who are interested in committing an act of terrorism. Because in the FBI's view, you know, the greatest threat for terrorism today is coming from these Muslim communities. And so informants are being sent into these communities looking for people who are espousing radical beliefs, who are um, saying they want to commit some sort of act of violence in response to U.S. foreign policy. And what the FBI does is through informants and through sting operations, they find these people who are espousing radical beliefs, and then they provide them with everything they need. So it might be someone who says, well, I want to, you know, I, I want to, you know, bomb a, a downtown skyscraper. And the FBI will say, okay, well, we can make that happen. And using undercover agents and informants who are posing as operatives of Al-Qaeda or one of its affiliate programs or affiliate networks, um, they will say, okay, here's the car that you need to deliver the bomb. Here's the bomb itself and uh, go to it. And they give them everything possible. And what, what, what my research has showed is that, you know, since 9-11, um, we, we've, ha we've had 175 defendants who have been caught in these sting operations. And these are men who, in large measure, for whatever reason, hate the United States and want to commit some sort of act of violence, but they don't have the means on their own. These are men who are entirely incapable. They're men on the fringes of U.S. Muslim communities who um, are, are at times economically desperate, um, at other times are mentally ill, and all of them are easily manipulated by a strong-willed FBI agent or a strong-willed FBI informant. And in these sting operations, as I, as I mentioned, the FBI provides everything, the, the, the means to, to commit their act of, act of terrorism, but also in some cases the actual idea for the crime itself. And what the FBI says in justifying this policy is that it's preventing the terrorists of tomorrow today by, by finding the people who would push that button to detonate the bomb if someone were there to give them that bomb. Um, my criticism of that policy in my book is that there has yet to be an example of someone who's just, you know, a, a total incapable person, total incapable wannabe terrorist, who on chance meeting finds an al-Qaeda operative who provides him with the bomb. It's only the FBI who are providing them uh, with the, the means to commit this act of terrorism. And in most cases, the evidence shows these, uh, no, I'm sorry, in all cases, the evidence shows that these men never would have had the capability to commit their crime were it not for the FBI providing everything that they need. And, and what this has ultimately done is really exaggerate the threat of Islamic terrorism from within the United States. 
because it has put on public display these hundreds of cases that involve the terrorist plot. And I think few in the public realize that, well, none of these defendants had the capacity for this terrorism on their own. It was only because the FBI, through this elaborate and expensive sting operation, gave them everything that they needed. It's an important point you're raising because, I mean, so they're bringing in all kinds of legislation, uh, uh, both the United States and Canada, because the, the conception on the part of the wider public is, how could they do something like this? How could they, you know, plot to, 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 to put a, you know, uh, an explosive here or there, and, and you're saying that if it wasn't for the FBI, uh, that they couldn't get away with it. Right, they could never commit their crime. You know, I mean, a, a rather amazing example, I think, is this is a case in in uh, Newburgh, New York, just outside New York City, and uh, the FBI sent in an informant who trolled the Muslim community for ten months, looking for someone who was interested in committing an act of violence. And he couldn't find anyone. In fact, he, he spent so much time at a particular mosque that they invited him to join the board of directors. And uh, finally, after 10 months, he meets a man who is a stalker at Walmart, who has a history of, of, of mental troubles, um, mental illness, and, and also had a very crude understanding of Islam. And through you know, months of being with this man, whose name was James Kermiti, um, the FBI informant encourages him to act on his, uh, you know, interest in violence and gives him an idea for bombing synagogues in the Bronx and firing Stinger missiles at airplanes taking off from the airport. Of course, James Cromedy on his own didn't have any access to weapons. He didn't have any money. He certainly could never have acquired a Stinger missile. But the FBI, through the Sting operation, gave him everything, gave him the bombs, gave him the Stinger missile. And, and what was particularly revelatory about that case was that halfway through it, the FBI was concerned that it would all fall apart, that James Cromedy would back out and say, I don't want to do this anymore, and they couldn't bring any charges against him. So as a backup, the FBI asked the informant to give him $500 and ask him to purchase a gun in New York City that would be used in the, as part of the terrorist plot. And the reason they did that was because James Cromedy was a felon. He'd, he'd previously served prison time for, for selling crack cocaine. And... Um, if he had a gun under U.S. law, that was a felony so that they would have a backup charge. If the sting fell apart, they could charge him with this felony gun offense uh, or firearm offense. So James Cromley takes the $500. He, he really wants to please this FBI informant he believes is an is a operative for Jaishi Mohammed, the, the Pakistani terrorist group. And he goes into New York and tries to buy a gun. He, he talks to people he knows who, you know, do they know a guy who can buy a gun from? He, he, you know, struggles to find someone he might be able to purchase a gun from. And then the next day has to come back to the informant and say, I'm sorry, I couldn't find anywhere I could get you a gun, and gives him back the $500. And, you know, what's amazing is that James ultimately would be prosecuted for um, conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, and FBI Director Robert Mueller has testified before Congress about what an incredible danger and threat he would have been had he been able to unleash his plan to bomb synagogues in the Bronx. But what Robert Mueller doesn't describe is how this man, left to his own devices, wasn't even able to purchase a gun in New York City. So really, how dangerous could a terrorist be who, on his own, can't even acquire a simple firearm? Hmm. Now, uh what happens uh, when uh, these individuals, when, when they have a, a court hearings for these uh, uh, terror suspects? I mean, as you seem to indicate, there's a, a significant amount of manipulation. Are there, uh, are there any successful prosecutions? Yeah, amazingly, the, the, um, despite the problems and the controversy of these operations, the Department of Justice has a near-perfect record of conviction in these cases. A part of that is 
you know, when someone is charged in the United States with terrorism, um, there are mandatory minimum sentences that if the person goes to trial and is found guilty, can, can be absolutely dr draconian. You're, you're talking 25 to 35 years. And so in many cases, in about 90% of the cases, uh, we're seeing defendants choose to take a plea that might get them about 7 to 12 years in prison um, in, in ex instead of going to trial and risking having to spend 25, 35 years, maybe the rest of their lives in prison. So there's a high degree of um, guilty pleas. But also fueling the, the high number of guilty pleas is the fact that the entrapment defense, um, if you're Muslim and if you're charged with terrorism in the United States, doesn't seem to work. You know, formerly 11 defendants have been charged with terrorism uh, as a result of, or, I'm sorry, 11 defendants have argued entrapment um, in response to their trials for uh, terrorism sting operations. And, what, what, and none has been successful in, in winning on that defense. And, and a big part of that is, you know, Entrapment is difficult to argue in any case because it requires you to say, yes, I, I committed this crime, but I wouldn't have done it were it not for the government agent overwhelming my free will. And um, the, the government can argue against that by, by proving two things. One, or by proving one central thing, that you were predisposed to commit this crime before the introduction of the government agent. And uh, the, what, what the federal government has been very successful at doing is putting on to the stand people who are so-called terrorism experts, but have very questionable and dubious credentials. And they will testify before juries that, you know, this man, before the government agent came along, watched a, a militant jihadi video, and he self-radicalized, and that made him predisposed to commit that crime. And, and juries, you know, for the most part are buying this, even though I think it's patently ridiculous. You know, I've watched jihadi videos. You may have as well. You know, that doesn't mean we're going to commit an act of terrorism. But that has been what the FBI and the Department of Justice have used to, to prove predisposition. The, the other part is that in, in arguing entrapment, um, you know, the jury has to be empathetic to the defendant and say, you know, he wouldn't have done it were it not for the FBI. And the problem is that these FBI stings um, in, always involve these huge and horrific plots, you know, not necessarily a small plot where a guy gets a, a gun and he's plotting to shoot somebody in the knee in the name of Al-Qaeda. You know, this is, I'm going to give you a huge bomb and you're going to deliver it to a downtown building and it's going to destroy that building as well as the, you know, the adjacent city blocks and you'll kill hundreds and if not thousands of people. And so when the jury hears this plot, they think, well, you know, I, I work in that building, my, 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 my sister, you know, works in the next block, you know, that could have been us. And it overwhelms them to such a degree that it's really hard for them to build sympathy or empathy for these defendants. And, and so what we're seeing is that even though there are abuses in these operations, even though, you know, the traditional definition of entrapment is that, you know, if you could not have committed this crime on your own and the government made it possible, then that is entrapment, isn't really meeting the current legal definition of entrapment in these terrorism sting operation trials. Hmm. Uh, do you see this... Um this network uh, having applications beyond uh, the, uh, the the Muslim extremist Muslims and uh, the uh, so-called war on terrorism. Well, you know, we're, we're seeing the use of agent provocateurs um, in other areas of terrorism. Well, outside of Muslims, you know, for example, we've seen um, agent provocateurs and FBI informants target specifically. Um, you know, so-called anarchists and environmental activists or so-called eco-terrorists in, in sting operations that are very similar in how they're, they're set up and also very similar in how they are attracting people who are in the fringes of these movements who often are, are mentally ill and, and, and not all the way there. Um, so we're definitely seeing 
some of that. But it's also important to, to realize that in many ways, these sting operations and the use of informants are really an evolution of FBI policy that's existed for decades. And, and you know, the, the most famous example of this is how it was applied in the drug war and the use of what are called no-dope busts. You know, for example, I'm sure everyone who's watched Miami Vice or, or seen uh, a movie about the 80s drug war, you know, has seen that scene as most cliche where there's a man in a Miami Beach high rise and he's all scruffy looking and he's got this briefcase and there's a camera on the room and two men come in and they, they hand over cash and they want that briefcase because they believe that they believe it's filled with cocaine or whatever drug it might be. They hand over the cash, the man gives them the briefcase and they open it up and they realize it's empty and FBI agents storm in and charge them with conspiracy to purchase you know, drugs or whatever the quantity is. And th- these terrorism sting operations are really an evolution of that tactic. You know, instead of an empty briefcase, it's an inert bomb, and they get the person to push the button to detonate it, and then they can charge them with a conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction. The difference, though, is that, you know, no one can deny that it's not difficult to buy or sell drugs in the United States. You know, certainly someone could, you know, if they wanted to find someone who's willing to buy or sell them drugs. So through these drug stings, the FBI isn't making possible a crime that otherwise wouldn't be possible. But in, in terrorism stings, it's really only the FBI that's making it possible for people who otherwise couldn't acquire weapons, who couldn't build a bomb, to go move forward in a terrorism, in an act of terrorism like we're seeing in these sting operations. So it's really the FBI that's making the crime possible in a way that they aren't with traditional drug stings, even though it's very much the same type of tactic that they're using today. Um, Trevor Aronson, the the evidence to date seems to suggest that the FBI was very well informed uh, about the the two suspects in the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, we've got uh, you know information from uh, Russian authorities as well as from uh, the the mother of the brothers, and I, I'm wondering how you would look into uh, what unraveled just uh, in, as of April 15th uh, through. You, how your in, your research informs your appraisal of, of what's going on with regard to the uh, the Boston City bombing and the subsequent investigation. Yeah, you know, my my book um, really raises a question, which is, you know, in its pursuit of these terrorism sting operations, um, and, and by spending so much time creating a sting on someone who is of questionable importance and is, is of questionable danger, what is the FBI missing? Are we missing the real threats instead? And, you know, there, there, before the Boston bombing, there had been some evidence to suggest that is the case. You know, for example, while the FBI was pursuing all of these sting operations, um, it missed Faisal Shahzad, the man that delivered the bomb to Times Square. It didn't know anything about him until he delivered that bomb. You know, fortunately, that bomb didn't go off, but it was troubling that here's a man who delivered a bomb to Times Square, which is far more than many of these wannabe terrorists are able to do, and the FBI didn't know anything about him. The, the other man was uh, Nadal Hassan, who killed 12 people at Fort Hood. You know, he rose up and started shooting people, and despite the FBI having investigated some of his emails to Anwar Walaki, the, the al-Qaeda propagandist, um, the FBI didn't view him as a threat and, and as such missed him and, and missed the opportunity to prevent his act of terrorism. And what we seem to what seems to have happened in Boston is the same thing. That is that the FBI, while it was focused on sting operations centering on people who were of questionable importance and questionable danger, missed the real dangerous guy, Tamar Zarnaev. And and what we know is that in January two thousand eleven the Russian government came to them, 
came to the FBI and expressed concern about Tsarnaev, expressed concern that he may be sympathetic to um, militants in Chechnya and, and maybe somehow involved in terrorism. According to the FBI, they, they interviewed Tsarnaev. They looked at his web traffic and his history, looking for any clues that suggested sympathy to or connection with international terrorist groups. And they said they didn't find anything, that they, they cleared him. And according to the FBI's accounts, that was the last, you know, that they, that they tracked him, that after January 2011, they stopped tracking him. But what's interesting is that same month, the same month that the FBI researched Sarnaev based on information from Russian authorities, which you would think, given that it's coming from a foreign government, this information would be seen as credible and, and really pursued. That same month, the FBI also received information about a man named Rezwan Ferdows, who was a Northeastern University graduate and an FBI informant who was addicted to heroin and being paid money by the FBI to provide information, came to them and said that Ferdows wanted to commit an act of terrorism. And Ferdows's idea was ridiculous. He wanted to take a remote-controlled airplane, load it with grenades, and fly it over the gold dome of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., and detonate it, expecting that it, destroyed the, it would destroy the gold dome. I mean, if it wasn't bad enough that his idea was patently ridiculous, Ferdows didn't have any means of even attempting it. You know, he didn't have any money. He didn't have an airplane. And even if he knew someone who could provide him with explosives, he didn't have the money to purchase, it and to purchase them anyway. And yet the FBI, on the same month it decided that Tom Lawrence Arneev was not a threat, they pursued a terrorism sting operation against Rezwan Ferdows. They provided him with $4,000 to purchase a remote-controlled airplane. Um, They gave him money to scout out locations from which to launch it in Washington, D.C. And then in the final stage, they gave him the explosives and the C-4, everything he needed, and then arrested him for a conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction. The, The evidence in this case clearly showed that he never could have committed his crime were it not for the FBI providing the means and the opportunity and spending all this time ushering him along through the terrorist plot. And so what's interesting is that while the FBI ignored someone who ultimately killed four people in Boston and injured more than 250 people, um, they then pursued this terrorism sting operation against the man whose danger was highly questionable. And I, I think this gets at the greater policy question for the FBI, which is, you know, as a result of these terrorism sting operations, are we really targeting and pursuing the really dangerous guys, or are we just building cases against you know, people on the fringes of communities who are easily manipulated by government agents. Mm. So it's essentially the, uh, well, well, there's a, the, there's the exterior threat, and then I don't know if you call it a, a bureaucratic threat, that, uh, you know, in order to maintain the, the existing system, you're, you're diverting resources away from, uh, you know, where real threats might conceivably exist. Yeah, I don't think this is, yeah, I don't think anyone at the FBI is saying, you know, we, we don't want to pursue real threats we want to pursue these fake ones, what's ultimately been created is kind of a bureaucratic evil and a bureaucratic problem, which is that, you know, the FBI receives $3 billion every year for its counterterrorism program. It's it's more money than it receives for organized crime, and it's the largest part of its budget. And I think what it boils down to often is the fact that there's a lot of money for counterterrorism and not a lot of terrorists going around. And so these sting operations are a very convenient way for, for the FBI to, to provide metrics, to be able to say, look at us, we're, do, we're keeping you safe, we're doing our job, these are the terrorism sting cases we've, we've found. 
um, or the, the, these are the terrorists that we found in the United States. But if, if you look at these cases closely, and if you look at FBI Director Robert Mueller's testimony before Congress on counterterrorism over the last decade, they consistently cite these sting operations as examples of, of terror plots thwarted, even though the FBI provided all of the means and, and the transportation and the weapons needed for this type of crime. And, and so what I think ends up happening is that there's a real incentive structure and pressure from within the Bureau to make cases. And that flows from the top executive level down to field agents who then you know, push their thousands of informants to identify people who are, would be terrorists. And these informants know that they can make a lot of money, $100,000 or more per case, if they can bring to the FBI someone who is interested in committing an act of terrorism. And, and what that ultimately does then is create a, a net that is capturing people on the fringes of these, society, of these communities who are easily manipulated, economically desperate, sometimes mentally ill, and they say they want to commit an act of terrorism. And the, the Bureau, kind of anxious and eager to make terrorism cases, is then moving along in sting operations against these men based on the theory that, well, he's not dangerous now, but he wants to commit an act of terrorism, and maybe one day he'll be able to do that. And, you know, they, so they're, they're then bringing these cases against people of very questionable danger, very questionable importance in the scheme of, of uh, terrorism in the world and in the United States, while at the same time, they've been missing the really dangerous guys. They've been missing Fadish Shazad, and they missed the Sarnayev brothers. And I think this may prove to be a huge distraction for the FBI, that as they've been pursuing these people in sting operations, they're really missing the dangerous terrorists, because the dangerous terrorists aren't really stupid enough to get caught up in these sting operations. Trevor Aronson is co-founder of the Florida Center for Investigative Reporter Reporting and a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism and the author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. Trevor Aronson, thank you very much for bringing your insights to our program. Of course. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. On April 25th, the Parliament of Canada gave royal assent to Senate Bill S-7, referred to as the Combating Terrorism Act. This bill resurrects the provisions of preventive arrest and investigative hearings from the former Anti-Terrorism Act Bill C-36, which sunsetted in 2007. The Senate bill, which has been tabled in February of last year and was fast-tracked on the parliamentary agenda in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombings, Within a day of the bill returning to Parliament for debate, the RCMP announced the arrest of two men supposedly linked with al-Qaeda in Iran, suspected of plotting to derail a via passenger train. The bill passed with the support of the opposition liberals, who, while in power in 2001, introduced the first post-9-11 anti-terrorism legislation. Defenders of the legislation say the provisions are necessary to protect Canadians in the midst of the threat of domestic and international terrorism. Critics of the bill fear for the violations of constitutional protections in the Canadian Charter. Joining us to discuss his concerns about the legislation and to put them in context is Rocco Galati. He is a Toronto-based constitutional lawyer. He's represented clients suspected of involvement in terrorism and has been outspoken against the provisions in this bill. Thank you so much for joining us, Rocco. Oh, thanks for having me again, Michael. 
Now, uh, could you uh, maybe outline um, the the uh, bill calls the provisions of preventive arrest and uh, investigative hearings? Could you uh, maybe discuss what those aspects of it and how why Canadians should be concerned about uh, those provisions? Well, this is the, the the cadaver that's been exhumed that was sunsetted back in 2007. Uh, the, the nuggets of this bill are it, re, it reinstates what they call preventative detention. So somebody can be detained without charge and held without charge for three days on suspicion and then let out the door and then be re-detained indefinitely for three days. So this can be a revolving door. The other thing it resurrects is the so-called investigative hearing where a person can be forced to answer questions. Uh, and if he, the person either refuses or they think he's lying, he can be imprisoned for up to 12 months. These are all draconian pre-revolutionary France provisions. They're, they're the, essentially the old uh, writs of attainder in the English Civil War the 16, uh, that were abolished in 1689 with the English Bill of Rights, and they're similar to the Lettre de Cachet that they had in pre-revolutionary France. So they're basically medieval provisions that uh, uh, flush the Constitution down the toilet. Hmm. Now, uh, of the other thing it does, I'm sorry, the fourth aspect of the bill that I forgot this does is that it extraterritorially uh, makes it an offense uh, for somebody to get on a plane and go anywhere in the world and and uh, assist or associate with what Canada deems to be terrorist, which is anyone they so arbitrarily deem, hmm. uh, whether that be, uh, you know, somebody fighting uh, oppression or uh, a legitimate uh, uh, legitimate to self-determination conflicts or things that actually created the United States of America in 1776 are now terrorism. Interesting. Uh, I remember not too long ago, uh, George Galloway, the British MP, was prevented from coming into his Canada because he was uh, involved with uh, charities in Palestine. Right, right. So if somebody wants to go out to Palestine to try to help the Palestinian people, that would be cons considered a, an act of, that, that could be considered. Well, you're, you're, we've had cases where charities have been uh, deregistered, where doctors indiscriminately just treat the wounded, and if you happen without knowledge, knowledge to be treating somebody they consider to be a terrorist, then you're associated with, with being a terrorist. So you're in an operating room, somebody comes in with, uh, you know, who, who's, who's, who's been, uh, maimed, you treat them, and they say, well, that, that person was with a faction that uh, is actually a terrorist wing. You as the doctor and the hospital and the charity are associated with terrorism. It's, it's just insanity. Now, um, the, 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 the argument goes that, uh, that uh, law enforcement officials need these extra tools in, in order to, uh, you know, thwart the, the prospect of oh. terrorism. Oh, God help us. What? How did we ever manage without them from 1867 to, 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 to the 1990s? Hmm. You know, the, the biggest acts of terrorism in Canadian history were actually the so-called homegrown terrorists were the FLQ crisis, the Air India bombing. I, I Some would argue Louis Riel. Some would argue he was freedom fighter, I don't know. But there was plenty of terrorism here before anybody even heard of a Muslim, you know? So how do we ever manage to deal with those terrorists in our history? Well, we dealt with them under the criminal law, like any other criminal. Mm -hmm. So this is just, this is just 
racial tribal nonsense in a phony war against terrorism by the United States of America where they feel free to bomb anyone with drones and kill women and children with impunity. And then, if, and if anybody as much as talks about the fact that this is not wrong, they're terrorists. Well, this is what fascist states do. Not, and this is, this is no different than the, the Third Reich. Anybody opposing Hitler was a terrorist. Hmm. Why is it that the United States of America gets to, gets to bomb anywhere they want and kill women and children uh, and, and call it collateral damage? And if anybody criticizes that, they're 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 associated with or they're sympathetic to Al Qaeda. What nonsense is this? You brought up the the, the history of of Canada's uh, counterterrorism uh, actions. I know that one very uh, famous example would be the uh, Trudeau's uh, invocation of the War Measures Act to deal with the FLQ. Uh, you, you alluded to it earlier. How would you say this legislation compares to that highly contentious move? It's very similar. We're under martial law. It's very similar. Uh, they, uh, under the under the uh, under that act, the War Measures Act, the, you could be detained uh, for up to 21 days without charge. You could be subject to investigative hearings. It's the same. That's where they got it from. So, if people want to know what this is, this is the equivalent of martial law. Hmm. Um, I, I've heard arguments coming from uh, conservatives uh, and other uh, defenders saying that uh, there is independent judicial oversight, that there's the, uh, the, the the onus is on the government to, to make sure they've got a strong case in place before uh, they go ahead with these sorts of arrests. Uh, did you, uh, do you buy that at all? That's, that's BS. Mm-hmm. The, the test is suspicion. What does that mean? You know. <laughs> the mm-hmm. test is suspicion of being involved. Well, suspicion might might as well be witchcraft. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just BS. That's just nonsense. Okay. They're just kowtowing to American pressure. And the reason these things are happening, uh, like the last time that they were reviewing the Patriot Act and the Sunset Clause, there's a convenient incident that happens in massive arrests and uh, high-profile arrests just before they're about to vote on it. And so, you know, a CBC report yesterday said that uh, some some people uh, cynically saw these as uh, overly coincidental. Well, it's 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 obviously more than coincidence. What this I is a pattern? Yeah. What I understand uh, that the Wall Street Journal had reported last week that uh, the FBI had been encouraging the RCMP to to hold back on uh, going forward with a re- with an arrest on this uh, of these men because they were. They they had their uh, to, to complete their uh, investigation or whatever, and uh, is there any sense that uh, between the Boston bombing, I mean, to try to give some credit to the RCMP, that uh, between the Boston bombing, that uh, having happened, that maybe they decided to you know, break away and then say, well, we we've, we've got to you know, move ahead with this, even though it had been investigated for a while. No, that's that's BS too, because yeah. with the Brampton 18 in which I was involved, the uh, uh, they could have, uh, on the same evidence that they arrested them, some, uh, a lot of them they wrongfully arrested, including my client who, uh, who, who was not convicted, but uh, they could have arrested them long before then on the same evidence, but they waited just the the eve of the uh, the reconsideration of the Sunset Clause and the Supreme Court of Canada's decision on the constitutionality of the provisions. Now, if I recall that case, uh, the, the Brampton 18 or the, the Toronto 18, um, there, there was also a vote that was supposed to take. It was it was timed at the same time as that's the right, vote the on the vote, terrorism. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
Patriot Act and the whole bit. It was the same, same as now. Now, I mean, isn't the RCMP supposed to be at arm's length from government? Because it sounds like the, the, the timing makes it a, a political act as opposed to a, a law enforcement action. Well, I mean, it's a rather naive view of things. Of course, yeah. the RCMP is supposed to be at arm's length, but they're not. Mm-hmm. So the... Um to, to what extent, then, I mean, there's uh, the, the RCMP and the FBI. Uh, how, how seamless is the connection there? Between whom? Well, say between the, 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 the RCMP running their investigation and the, uh, the, the FBI. Uh, I mean, to, to what extent are, are the RCMP and the FBI integrated? I, I, I have no clue. No idea? I have no clue. No. Okay. Um, I, think, I, I think that there are political forces uh, at, uh, at different and higher levels, including intelligence services that also play. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but the agenda is the same in terms of, uh, you know, so-called war on terror. Mm-hmm. Now, when the, uh, going back to that announcement by the RCMP, they, uh, like, they, they, there were few details except for the fact that they located these two men who proclaimed their innocence, and they, uh, they, they were linked with al-Qaeda in Iran, and beyond that, they, <clears throat> beyond that, they didn't seem to, the RCMP didn't seem to say much about their evidence or, or, or how they, they, they came to this decision. So, Well, isn't that enough for you, Michael? <laughs> I mean, you know, they never do. And often when you get to see the evidence, it's not evidence. It's suspicion on suspicion. Uh, I, I can't comment on whatever evidence may exist there, but, uh, you know, uh, that's not atypical. Mm-hmm. So with uh, the okay, so the, the, the bill was uh, given royal assent, and uh, um, it, it is supposed to sunset again another five years, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but these things, you know, the we've had we've had world wars that have lasted less than a third of what the so-called uh, war on terror on, on terror has, uh, lasted. This 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 war on terror reminds me, and these sun set clauses are the same as my father quitting smoking every day, you know? So what? It, it, it's just part of a, a phony script. We don't need any of this nonsense. We can deal with any allegations of terrorism under the common criminal law. These provisions are unnecessary. They simply are there historically. I mean, this is not the first time we've been there. All they're there for is to demonize a, a race, a religion. Uh, they have political purposes, uh, uh, socioeconomic purposes, uh, domination in terms of geopolitical interests, and uh, they got nothing to do with the criminal law. We don't need uh, these these uh, hyperventilated uh, voodoo provisions uh, to deal with terrorists. Terrorists are just uh, another form of criminals, and so uh, all of this is just nonsense. It's political. Uh, we've been there before, as I said, historically, not just in this country, but in a lot of countries who want to impose a fascist state and agenda. Do it through the guise of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Everybody's done it, you know. Yeah. Uh, the Roman, the Romans uh, branded the Jewish zealots as terrorists. Uh, you know, everybody down the line. Uh, King George said the Minutemen were terrorists, and by by the current definition, they were. But we don't see them as terrorists. They were freedom fighters, and so on it goes. I mean, you know, anybody who's on the dissenting voice of a fascist political. Uh, system is a terrorist. It's an easy. It's an easy way to simply impose draconian measures. Mm. 
what would you say to those Canadians who, uh, you know, might uh, argue something to the effect as that, well, you know, I'm I'm not a Muslim, I'm not, uh, I'm certainly not a terrorist, so uh, I, I don't have anything to worry about. I mean, well, what would you say to them? Well, name me a non-Anglo-Francophone community in Canada, and I'll give you the historical time frame when they were terrorists. That's what I'd say to them. Mm-hmm. And even the Francophones were terrorists during the FLQ crisis. So, you know, but what's that mean? Canadian, who, which Canadians? Dif- you know, at different points of time in history, non-Anglo and Francophone Canadians, and including Francophones during the independence movement of Quebec, uh, were terrorists, conveniently were terrorists, and a threat to national security. Mm. Now, we we have ceases for the last several years saying that the native rights, uh, uh, sorry, the native uh, native Canadian groups uh, who are agitating are terrorists and uh, and pose a security threat to Canada. So we're back to that. First, they came for the Muslims. Yeah, and then well, they've they've done the run, they've done the run of everyone else. They interned the Italians, the Japanese, the Dukabors, uh the Mennonites, the. The Ukrainians, the, you know, uh, you know, let's go through the history of Canada. Everybody's been interned. Every group has been interned or labeled treasonous when it was convenient to do so. You know, not to mention, you know, everybody's been at the, at the, 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 the fascist end of that, uh, batter, uh, battering ram. You know, Jewish Canadians, Ukrainians, uh, Italians, Japanese, Chinese. So what's new? Now it's the Muslims. Deja vu all over again. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Rocco Galati, I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing your your insights into this uh, legislation, and uh, uh, thanks again for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Rocco Galati is a Toronto-based constitutional lawyer. Joining me now on the line to discuss the Boston bombing attacks as well as the recent arrests in Canada and putting it in the context of the media coverage and how it's all playing out is Julie Levesque. She is one of the journalists working with globalresearch.ca. So thank you very much for joining us, Julie. Thank you for having me. Do you want to want to share what you feel are some of the more salient aspects of the situation with our listeners? Yes. Well, I think uh, the first thing we need to point out is that um, there was lots of lies um, by the FBI. Um, they've been, of course, the media, I mean, it's not their fault if the FBI is lying, but the thing is uh, that they don't question afterwards the claims uh, of the FBI. Uh, for example, uh, one of the first uh, lies that came up was that uh, they said they didn't know uh, who the two uh, brothers were, and in fact they knew. <laughs> they did, you know. Um, they were on, on watch list, on the FBI watch list, and on the CIA watch list uh, as well. So uh, that was one of the, the big lies. They had to admit it afterwards uh, that they knew the brothers. Uh, and then uh, we were told that uh, the oldest of the two was uh, killed in a shooting with the in a uh, gunfire exchange with the police. Uh, it turned out, though, that uh, we have seen 
uh, on TV a video where there, it seems to be to be Tamerlan, uh, who's in custody of the police. He's completely naked. He's handcuffed, and uh, apparently his aunt uh, identified him. So uh, that raises the question: Was he the victim of an extrajudicial uh, assassination? And who did that? Because, you know, the police, and they tell us he's dead, but, you know, we cannot believe these people because they keep lying all the time. Also, they said that there was an exchange of fire with uh, Zokar, the, the youngest of the two brothers. Uh, it turned out um, afterwards that um, he was unarmed. So the whole gunfire exchange, again, was not true. Um, one of the other lies that came up was that uh, you probably remember that we were told that the two brothers um, robbed the 7-Eleven uh, and that they stole a car from a man and the man said, oh, uh, the, they said, oh, we are the bombers, which is, it, it sounds, maybe it's true, but it sounds a little bit absurd. If you're, if you're running away from the police and then you steal a car and you tell the person <laughs> from which you steal the car, hey, I'm the guy the police is looking for. Um, you know, it sounds a little bit strange, but um, coming back to the 7-Eleven uh, robbery, it turned out that it was not uh, the two brothers who uh, who robbed the 7-Eleven, and that was confirmed by the spokes by the 7-Eleven uh, spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a lot of questions that remain. You know, we were told that uh, an MIT police was killed uh, by the oldest of the two brothers, uh, Tamerlan Tarnayev. Um, is it true? Is it not? We don't know. I think we cannot believe anything uh, the FBI says. Mm-hmm. And um, lately, uh, we've been told that uh, Zokar Tanayev admitted um, of committing the, uh, the the bombings with his brother. But um, who says that? You know, who he admitted to who, and and who's reporting? Um, those claims, you know, I think we need to question all these claims, yeah. um, and that's what the media is not doing. And they're, when they found, it seems, it seems like they're taking every single claim of the FBI uh, at face value. Yeah, that's their f- official source, I suppose. I, mean, I was following this pretty closely uh, during the week, and it was on the Wednesday. I mean, they were there was this strange back and forth. You know, the, we have a suspect in custody. Uh, sources confirm this and say, oh, we well, actually don't have a suspect, and so they kept yeah. delaying this press conference. You know, anything like what was going through your mind when when you're hearing throughout that day? I mean, is this sloppiness, or, or are they trying to figure out what their what their next uh, well, story it's, it's is going to be? Hard to know. I mean, th- to this day, I mean, the, what is really sad is that in the media, the two and in the media and you know the authorities uh, as well. The President Obama has said that you know he's condemned the two boys already when we don't know for sure what happened. You know. They've been accused, but uh, they're still entitled to get a, um, a trial. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the media, they've been they've been condemned already. And it's really hard to know when you know with all these lies uh, of the uh, the FBI. Uh, it's it's really hard to know what happened. And there's contradicting um, uh, stories from uh, the police also in in Watertown. Uh, they said that the two brothers came to to Watertown in two separate cars. And then you have the FBI saying that no, they came in the in a black Mercedes, a black SUV, you know. So there's so many contradictions. It's and also I think one important thing that was not um, in the mainstream media was that uh, there was well, I'm saying it, it was not. 
Uh, it's not true. <laughs> it was in a small, um, I think it, it was aired on a small um, TV station. Um, there was a bomb drill uh, the day before the marathon, and um, one of the witnesses um, is a, a veteran uh, marathon runner. Um, his name is uh, Alistair Stevenson. He was there, and he said that he's never seen uh, in his life, he's been to many big marathons, and he said never in his life he's seen um, such a high level of security at a marathon. And he said they had bomb-sniffing dogs, and you, you could see that there were um, snipers on top of buildings, and they kept saying to people, don't worry, it's just a drill. And, I mean, the media, mainstream media should have investigated that further, and they have not. And that sort of just, it just remained uh, uninvestigated, and that's not normal. I mean, if there was a drill, and if there was such high security, and what is really strange is that now we're saying, that, oh, we need, we need more security. Um, and, you know, if there was such high security at that marathon, how come that's when the bombing happened, you know? Yeah. It, what it means is that, you know, even if you have the highest security uh, level possible, it doesn't guarantee that you're not going to have any attacks. There was a decision by the Canadian government to bring forward this legislation relating to the, uh, anti the Combating Terrorism Act, and very fortuitously there just happened to be the announcement of this arrest, and there are very few details except for the fact that... Uh, um, they, you have the two suspects. They wanted to uh, have a plot to derail a via passenger train, and they linked it with uh, Al Qaeda in Iran. And uh, other than that, we can't say anything because there's an investigation. I mean, what do you make of that uh, whole situation? Yeah, well, that, that is very strange. I mean, obviously, uh, I think it, it is clear that um, it's been that specific case. Whether the the suspects are, are guilty or not, and then again, they're presented as guilty, even if you know uh, they, Claim they, they denied being um, uh, having plotted uh, to derail that train. Um, they're presented as guilty in the in the media, and the media doesn't question again. They don't question the claims of the the RCMP. And I mean, in the past, uh, they've proven to uh, like the FBI. They've proven. To, to, to lie and to, to, to run sting operations, you know, to entrap people, to, to, to make them plot to commit um, acts of terrorism. So, uh, and yet, you know, they're, they're saying that, oh, yeah, we've, uh, we've foiled the plot, but what are the, where's the evidence? We don't have any evidence. And the media, again, is taking this at face value. They don't question the claims of the RCMP. Um, and it's really hard to know, is it really a plot that's been foiled? And they say that they've, they've been cooperating with the U.S. Um, um, law enforcement. I think that's scary, <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think these people, I don't think we can trust these people. And the role of the media is to question them, and they don't. So and, and, yeah, you, you said, uh, you mentioned al-Qaeda in Iran. That's one other thing. Um, it seems like, you know, Iran, we know that, we know how the conservative government feels about Iran. You know, they consider it to be the, the, the biggest threat uh, in the world, where, you know, when you look at the facts, the biggest threat in the world right now is the United States of America. You know, they're the ones who are doing the most damage uh, in the world right now with their, their military all over the place um, and the, their drone attacks and everything. So um, 
I think uh, this Al-Qaeda and Iran thing, first of all, it doesn't make sense because Al-Qaeda is, uh, is a Sunni and uh, Iran is a Shiite uh, country. Um, and we've um, there's a really good article about, uh, I, I can't remember who is it from, who it's from, but... Um, um, the Tony Cartolucci? Yeah, I think so. Yes, yes, you're right. That's it. About, yeah, Al-Qaeda in Iran. Who's behind Al-Qaeda in Iran? You know, who's doing the, the funding and everything? And again, it's the U.S. And we know that, you know, they've, in the past, they've proven to, and again today, you know, with the uh, terrorists in Syria who are portrayed as, as um, pro-democracy uh, rebels, uh, we know uh, that they're, they're supported by, um, by the, the CIA, you know? So, who's behind Al-Qaeda in Iran? And then when we ask, you know, when, when you ask experts, uh, quote-unquote, about uh, the fact that it doesn't make sense, you know, Al-Qaeda in Iran, uh, they'll say, well, you know, yes, they've been um, enemies, but they're united in their hatred for the Western world. <laughs> and this is, you know, why? If if it is the case, why is there such hatred? They will never go any further, you know. And oddly enough, uh, I don't know if you remember the conclusions of the the nine eleven commission report. We we know you and I know that it's a it's a cover up. But still, the conclusion of that was that the attacks had been committed because of the foreign policy of the U.S. in the Middle East and their um, their support for um, for Israel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, if Canada is a potential uh, um, a victim of terrorism, let's ask us if our foreign policy has anything to do with that, you know? Indeed. Um, Julie, is there any other, uh, as uh, global research sort of continues on the uh, analysis and investigation, are there any other uh, aspects of this whole, um, you know, homeland terrorism, uh, homegrown terrorism uh, stuff that uh, you're... Uh, your site is uh, focusing on? Yeah, well, actually, there is a, a really good article by James Petrus that's been posted um, recently. He talks about the uh, the revived war on terror. And I think um, whether it was really an act of, of terrorism committed by uh, the two uh, Tarnayev brothers or not, um, it is clear that it's the, the event is being used to revive the war on terror. And even, you know, the government... Uh, the Canadian government, when they said, uh, when they decided to, um, to to pass a new law, the S7 bill, um, they said that you know the the, the they used the Boston bombing as uh, um, an example to, to to say that yes, there is really a terrorist um, threat. It is, it is very real, and that's why we need um, we need new laws. Um, and so, yeah, James Petrus in his article focuses on the the, the police state, you know. And um, it, it, it's clear that the impact for uh, our country and for, for the U.S. is that if there's, there's new attacks on our rights and, and, and liberties. Well, Julie Levesque, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, thank you for uh, coming on our show yet again, and thanks for your ongoing work with the Global Research. Well, thank you. Uh, we've been speaking with Julie Levesque, a uh, journalist and researcher with the Center for Research on Globalization in Montreal. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. 
You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.